In the market for investment-worthy bags, watches, and fine jewelry, Rebag is the answer. Rebag is a luxury resale platform where each piece is carefully inspected by experts to ensure quality and authenticity. Use Rebag to buy and sell finds from the world's top brands, including Louis Vuitton, Chanel, and Cartier. Head to Rebag.com and get up to 15% off your first purchase as a member with code REBAGNEW. Shop today at Rebag.com. That's R-E-B-A-G.com. And use promo code REBAGNEW for up to 15% off your first purchase as a member. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. John Hume genuinely was a political titan. I mean, his contribution to peace in Northern Ireland was extraordinary. I don't think we would ever have really got the peace process going if he hadn't been there offering help and advice. John Hume was not just one of the most influential political figures in Northern Ireland's history, but in Irish history. King George V came to Belfast to set up a parliament and a system of government. Fifty years later, Citizen is separated from citizen by barbed wire and lines of soldiers on the streets of Belfast. Can there be any greater evidence of the failure of a system of government? As the leader of nationalism throughout most of the Troubles, he resolutely stood against violence and his ideas shaped the Good Friday Agreement. I want to see Ireland as an example to men and women everywhere of what can be achieved by living for ideals rather than fighting or dying for them. But this man, who with David Trimble would jointly win the Nobel Peace Prize, also had his flaws. There was a naivety, I think, on John Hume's behalf uh, that he didn't see the growth of Sinn Féin, that Sinn Féin were striking a chord with the electorate in a way that the SDLP weren't. And, but he was convinced that the electorate would always remember his role and would remember the role of the SDLP. He was used to being top of the poll. I'm here with the journalist and author Stephen Walker to discuss his new biography of John Hume, The Persuader, and to consider Hume's life, his ideas, and his legacy. Stephen Walker, you're very welcome to The Bell Tell. This is a book about a giant of Irish politics, but there's an interesting story as to how this came about. It precedes your involvement in this book. Tell me tell me how this started. Well, uh, I wanted to write a book about John Hume because I felt he was such a seismic figure in Irish history and Irish politics. And after he died, um, uh, I thought there was a gap in the market for a traditional biography. So I started to do um, a series uh, of interviews. I subsequently uh, made contact uh, with Gill Books, but they said, there's something else you need to know. We tried to do a biography, uh, an autobiography with John Hume back in 2002 and 2003, and the project was abandoned. They said, if you come to us, we can give you 25 unpublished interviews with John Hume. And when I heard that, I nearly fell off my seat because uh, in terms of... uh, 
a biographer, that is a biographer's dream. So as soon as I discovered that, I was very happy with Gill. Uh, we came to an arrangement to publish the book and they were able to give me access to these 25 interviews. And I have used these 25 interviews plus 75 interviews of my own, which gives us the grand figure of 100. So the whole book is based on 100 interviews. And that's that's a remarkable thing, because obviously at the point where you come to start writing this book, John Hume's dead. He he had been obviously in very poor health. His, his mind had gone largely by the end of his life, so he wasn't in a position to do interviews even before that. So you're almost getting his words from beyond the grave here, um, where he had been able to give these interviews in, you know, 20-something tw- years ago, and you're able to pick up on that in a way that very few biographers would be able to do. Yes, I mean, that's what makes it quite remarkable. These are... John Hume's words. These are John Hume's recollections. Um, and it's not sanitised. It's, it's, it's straight from the horse's mouth, so to speak. Uh, and he talks about his upbringing in Derry. He talks about his parents. He talks about the credit union. He talks about Maynooth. He talks about the civil rights in the early days. And inevitably, with a book about John Hume, you have to be able to say, right, I am bringing something fresh to the table. Take us back to the start. John Hume was born in 1937. What was the sort of Northern Ireland into which he was born and what was what was life like for the Humes? Well, life for the Humes was very difficult. I mean, they were a family that didn't have much money. Uh, they lived in, in cramped conditions. Um, John Hume's uh, mother worked in the shirt industry and his father had been uh, a, a civil servant and had suffered various bouts of, of unemployment. And that hurt John uh, when he talked about that in later life. He felt that his father really should have had a better career and, and shouldn't have been unemployed. And he felt that his father had been overlooked. My father was unemployed. I was the eldest of seven children. My father was a very, very intelligent man. Because when I was a child, I'd be sitting at the wooden table in our house doing my homework. My father would be sitting at the same table because we could only have one table, writing letters for all of the people of the district who would come in because he was a superb handwriter. So from I was no age, the problems of ordinary people was normality. So John would have witnessed friends and neighbours coming into the house and asking his father for help, and in a sense... That would have been John's first introduction to, I suppose, community service. But his father wouldn't have called it community service. It was simply helping out a friend or a neighbour. And there's a great line in the book about him being a paper boy. He was a paper boy for the Belfast Telegraph. And he would read, you say, the papers as he was delivering them or perhaps after he'd, he, he, had, he had sent them to where they were meant to go. So he was always informed, even at this very early stage in his life, of what was going on in Northern Ireland and what was going on in the island and in the world. He was probably one of the best informed schoolboys in Ireland um, because, uh, as you say, he, he delivered the newspapers uh, and he read them from cover to cover. So he had a knowledge of the world, he had a knowledge of Ireland and a knowledge of Northern Ireland that perhaps his peers didn't have. Clearly, at an early age, he had an interest in what was going on in the world around him and he was an avid reader. Then after school, he goes off to Maynooth, he starts to train for the priesthood. Tell me why he did that and then why he ended that particular career choice at a fairly early point. Well, he had a strong faith. Uh, he enjoyed the environs of the church. He, he went to church regularly. He was a very good student. There was an expectation um, at one stage that he would go to Maynooth and then he would 
become a priest. At some stage in Maynooth, things started to change. Now, it's very difficult um, to get a definitive answer to this, uh, and you can speculate. It's possible that he found Maynooth um, too confining. He possibly thought, if I become a parish priest... I might not be able to do lots of things that I want to do. Uh, For example, obviously, he wouldn't be able to get married. Um, He perhaps thought, I won't be able to travel a lot. He was beginning to um, experience travel. He would go to France quite a lot. He was fluent in French. So he may have thought, I won't be able to do all these things. And I think he just ultimately came to conclusion, no, this isn't the life for me. And then he left Maynooth and, and then became a teacher. Fast forward a bit to 1964. He's still in his 20s. He's a young teacher. He's living in Derry and he features in a film that is jointly produced by RTE and the BBC. Modern Derry has been built largely by its women. Male employment has never kept pace. This is Derry's major problem, a problem greater than elsewhere in the United Kingdom, a problem that has brought chronic depression on its men, nothing but conversation to while away the hours. Many forget that one dairy man in five cannot earn a living in the city of his birth. The effect on the soul of a city is immeasurable. And after seeing this, the Irish Times asked him to write two articles for the paper on the situation in Northern Ireland. What is the significance, do you think, of that period in his life that he perhaps by chance is picked up as the person to write these articles to feature in this film and what he articulates there goes on to, in some ways, define his politics for the rest of his life? Well, it's significant because he's an unknown. So essentially, this unknown is is almost plucked from obscurity to write these articles. The Irish Times clearly saw something in John Hume, and he used that platform in the the Irish Times to articulate his views. He was critical of the Nationalist Party. He felt they were too old-fashioned, and he focused in on the whole issue of consent, and and it was quite unusual for people to talk about the issue of consent, particularly people who were coming from a nationalist background. And he talked about the fact that it wasn't just, I suppose, the land that was divided, that it was the people that were divided. Classic Hume phrase that we become used to throughout his entire political career. So what in a sense he was doing was he was, I suppose, laying the bedrock um, for his political career. And if you go through that article, you start to see a whole series of Hume themes that he developed throughout his entire political career. One of these articles was headlined The Northern Catholic and in it he said the Protestant tradition in the North is as strong and legitimate as our own. He said that if a man wanted to remain um, in the Union as as, as someone from Northern Ireland that did not make him a bigot or a discriminator and he emphasised as you've said that Irish unity was only achievable if a majority in Northern Ireland wanted it. I mean for people of my generation and for lots of people listening to this John Hume is seen as the personification of nationalism of what it meant to be nationalist for for most of the last half century until they were overtaken by Sinn Féin. Uh, but here he is setting out something that's really radical and is almost forgotten now as to just how much he was pushing the boundaries of what nationalists at that point thought was acceptable. Yes, I mean, when you read that today, Sam, through the prism of 2023, it seems rather anodyne. It seems not particularly newsworthy. 
But in the mid-1960s, this was newsworthy. This was seen as radical. He was seen as a thinker. And particularly coming from the nationalist tradition where he was basically saying, look, we have to recognise our neighbours. Our neighbours' aspirations are as legitimate as ours. And if we are to configure any kind of new nation or any kind of new country, then it has to be an amalgam of those two traditions and we have to walk together in step. So, you know, in a classic Hume speak, um, but ahead of his time, there was an expectation after those articles that he would go into politics. Now, ultimately he did, but he didn't in the mid-1960s. It took some time. The Northern Ireland border town was another scene of violence in a black weekend. What started as a peaceful civil rights march turned into a battlefield. Despite appeals by march leaders for no violence, trouble flared when steel-helmeted police altered the marchers' route to exclude a Protestant area of the town. As a protest, the marchers... And how significant to getting into politics was his involvement in the civil rights movement? Oh, it was everything. Because in a sense, what he witnessed on the streets of Derry uh, defined him. Uh, Hume was a Derry man to his fingertips when he saw people not getting jobs because of their religion, when he saw people not getting houses because of their religion, when he saw people being denied to protest or walk down the street. He saw a state that didn't care in his view. He saw a council that didn't care in his view. And he felt that society needed to be better and that people needed basic human and civil rights. And so it defined him. And then obviously from the civil rights, we then see, you know, the fully fledged John Hume becoming involved in politics, ultimately, you know, setting up a party, becoming a leader and then ultimately MP, MEP and then peacemaker uh, through the 80s and 90s. And Hume would go on to become a target, not just for loyalists in some cases, but for Republicans. You recount how his home was attacked, you recount how his family were threatened at various points. And you say something that's fairly remarkable, that in keeping with his pacifism, he refused to carry a personal protection weapon. Um, I mean, that's really striking. Well, I think he said he would be a hypocrite. He said, how can I be a man of peace if, if I carry and I'm paraphrasing, if I carry a gun. And he, he said he couldn't be a pacifist. He couldn't be an advocate for peace if he carried a gun. And and he refused a gun. Now, the family home did have sort of protection. And ultimately, towards the latter stages of the peace process, there were reports that loyalists were, go, were trying to kill him. And there was serious intelligence that loyalists were going to come across to Donegal. And both the police forces north and south of the border um, were very worried about what might happen to him. And guards were put very close to his home in Greencastle in Donegal. And initially he was reluctant, but I think friends and family members said, look, you really need to take this seriously. The family home was routinely attacked in the 1970s by people throwing stones and petrol bombs. His car was attacked, his office was attacked. There was um, an episode in the early 1970s where the IRA 
uh, plotted to kidnap Anya Hume, John Hume's daughter, but they in fact kidnapped the wrong girl and they only realised it was the wrong girl when they went through um, this schoolgirl's um, uh, school bag and discovered books with someone else's name in it. So there were serious threats by both Republicans and Loyalists and it was incredibly difficult for the Hume children. Remember, they would have walked to school with past graffiti on the wall about their father and mother. They would have lived in a house and they would have witnessed stones and petrol bombs. They would have been jeered at in the street. All the children would have would have witnessed something at, at, at some stage. And of course, important to stress that he was targeted by both loyalists and Republicans. And on the latter of those, you quote Eamon McCann, obviously a fellow civil rights activist, um, saying that the provost hated him. That is not too strong a word. He says that the provost don't like to be reminded of this, but they attempted to kill John. They attempted to kill his family. And yet the remarkable thing is that with all that hatred that lay in the past there, it's Hume who Adams goes to to establish his dialogue, which ultimately, you could say, leads in significant part to the Good Friday Agreement. Why did Adams go to Hume? Um, and what was Hume's initial reaction to that? Well, Republicans initially reached out to Seamus Mallon because there was a there was a thought process within the Republican movement, perhaps, that, that Mallon was greener than Hume and that they might get a better hearing from Malin. But for various reasons, um, the the Malin-Adams access didn't work. Malin certainly appeared to be reluctant to get involved. An invitation came from Alec Reid, and John Hume became involved um, in this process of discussions with Gerry Adams, the Sinn Féin president. What's interesting about those discussions... Um, and, and, and there were different forms of discussions. There were discussions where the two men were just there. There were discussions where there were bigger delegations, where there were, there were more party members involved. Was that a trust and a bond developed between the two men? Hume, uh, being an intellectual, uh, being a student of Irish history, understood the Republican position very well. Um, Adams, again, well-read, uh, understood where Hume was coming from, and they trusted each other. Um, and Hume realised um, and believed uh, that um, Republicans were serious, were serious about ending what they regarded uh, as the armed struggle. And he, and he kept at it, despite the fact that regularly the talks would be criticised by unionists. They were heavily criticised in parts of the media, particularly the Sunday Independent. But Hume had this uh, ability which... Mark Durkin calls, I'm not sure this is a word, but he uses it nonetheless, he calls it stickability. Um, and he did have dogged stickability. You know, he was committed to the idea of dialogue. He firmly believed that the only way the troubles would end would be if people sat down and talked. Uh, and and he used the same phrases over and over again. But it worked. And when he said things like, agreement threatens nobody, well, you know exactly what he means. It's short, it's simple, and it's to the point. And in a sense, when you look back at what has been achieved, you have to conclude that he was right. It was dialogue that led to the Loyalist and Republican ceasefires. It was dialogue that led to the Good Friday Agreement. And it was dialogue that has led to this peace, an imperfect peace, that we are enjoying in 2023. I was totally and absolutely opposed to violence and the IRA. 
But it was a historian and he knew the traditional reasons in Ireland for IRA existence. And I knew that whatever about our history, that those reasons were no longer true today. And I said so. And then I got a secret message. Would I meet them and talk to them? And I met Sinn Féin and Jerry Allen, who said, you prove what you're saying is true and we'll stop. And what I was saying was that there are two reasons, you see, for violence, where the British are in Ireland defending their own interests by force. Therefore, we have the right to use force to put them out. And my argument was that used to be true in the past, but it's not true in today's new century. And they said, you prove that. So it ended up with me getting the British and Irish governments to make a joint statement. Britain had no selfish, selfish economic or strategic interest in being in Ireland. It was a matter for the people of Ireland, North and South, to sort out their differences. That led to the ceasefires. Hume had a complicated relationship with unionism throughout his life and certainly during his his time as SDLP leader. There was a point in 1986 where he said to the Observer newspaper, after the Anglo-Irish Agreement, after there's been this furious unionist backlash to the first time that the Irish government had formally been given some sort of say in in the internal affairs of Northern Ireland, um, there were street demonstrations, there had been violence, there had been all manner of protest, but Mrs Thatcher was unmoved at that point. And what he said to the Observer newspaper was that he always expected a furious unionist reaction to the agreement, but the Protestant boil had to be lanced. And you pick up on those words and you say that um, it's striking that he uses the word Protestant instead of unionist. And there are there are people even who are close to Hume at one point within the SDLP who you quote in the book who are quite critical of that. There's Dan Keenan, for instance, who was a press officer, who says that certainly on more than one occasion he refers to them, that is unionists, in a pathological sense that they needed to be educated, the boil needed to be lanced, they needed to be this or another, they needed to be taken down a peg or two, and that's all done in very superior language. And he then goes on to say, you know, on the one hand, here is the guy making a single transferable speech for the need of cooperation, getting on together on this and the other. On separate occasions, he would almost demonise them, to be quite honest with you, and talk about them in those terms, which just does not make sense. You can't denigrate somebody and yet insist that you need their agreement. Now, that's really striking coming from somebody who, yes, went on to be an Irish Times journalist, but was very much um, close to Hume in the SDLP at a certain point. And he's saying that Hume had a problem with unionists here. Well, I mean, Hume supporters would say that, that those words are clumsy and that what he meant to say was that you need to bring people uh, along the road together, that you need to reach out, that, that no one should have a particular veto. Certainly uh, the phrase Lance the Protestant boil would not be defined as a cross-community phrase. It would probably not be seen as particularly helpful in terms of endearing himself to the Protestant population or indeed those that vote unionist. I thought it was interesting that he used the word Protestant and not the word unionist. Um, and obviously he, he, he did use another phrase, which again, um, unionists were very critical of when he accused unionists of being a petty people. Um, and that caused a political storm at the time. And the petty people remark was not forgotten by unionists. And it was not forgotten, particularly by a certain David Trimble, because when John Hume and David Trimble went to Oslo to pick up the Nobel Peace Prize, David Trimble in his speech in Oslo says, we are not a petty people. So Trimble had waited a long time um, to return 
Mr. Hume's comments. Um, but eventually he sort of got his retaliation in, but he waited a long, long time to deliver that line. But certainly those were two things that always struck me as, as not being uh, the words of someone that was reaching out essentially across the barricades. They're not cross-community sentences. They're not sentences filled with warmth or love or peacemaking. But yet you have to contrast that against what he achieved. And what he achieved was he brought Sinn Féin in. He was able to uh, assist Uh, and develop the IRA ceasefires. His fingerprints are all over the Good Friday Agreement. The issue of consent is in the Good Friday Agreement. The issue of north-south-east-west relationships are there. Again, that's Hume speak. You talked about talking about consent in the 1960s, and again, he was ahead of his time there. He was also ahead of his time in the 1970s when he was talking about reform of the RUC, decades before Patton decades before Patton. So he was a politician who had an ability to predict what was going on um, in a world where there were other politicians, you know, who might have had difficulty trying to work out what was going to happen tomorrow or the day after. You know, Hume was talking about weeks and months, whereas the other politicians were perhaps talking about hours and days. I was going back through the Belfast Telegraph archive for the 25th anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and something jumped out at me from the pages of the Belfast Telegraph, I think about two weeks or so before the Good Friday Agreement was actually finalised. And it was an article by Lord Fitt, Jerry Fitt, um, SDLP founder, obviously, somebody who had worked very closely with John Hume. And he said in that piece that what was coming was Sunningdale for slow learners. Now, that obviously is a phrase that now is very much associated with Seamus Mallon. Um, but what, what he was getting across in that article was actually a criticism, not just of unionism for having screwed it up at Sunningdale and not not having been willing to accept in terms of the broad mass of the union's population and the Ulster Workers' Council strike, that power sharing was necessary, was inevitable, was the only way to govern Northern Ireland at that point. But also, even though he didn't name Hume in the article, it was obvious that he was driving at Hume, saying that some people within the executive had essentially been too green. They had pushed too hard to get too much um, on the Council of Ireland. They had gone beyond what was possible, what was reasonable, and that it had fallen apart. Did did Hume ever, do you think, reflect, did you ever come across any evidence of Hume reflecting on Sunningdale and thinking that he had made a mistake there? Or did he think that it was actually um, something that he was right to do and that unionism was wholly to blame for that agreement coming down? I think he felt Sunningdale was the right thing to do because he believed in power sharing. He believed in people from different political backgrounds coming together and creating an environment where they could govern for the greater good. So he supported Sunningdale. I think he wished there had been a referendum on Sunningdale, so it basically would have had um, the support of the people. He felt um, very uh, bitter and angry about what happened in terms of what was happening on the streets. He lay a lot of the blame at the foot of the British government. He thought the British government were weak and didn't stand up to those loyalist uh, campaigners and supporters who helped to bring Sunningdale down. And I think after that, he was he was scarred by it. And I think after that, he decided to redouble his efforts by looking elsewhere, that he realised that the problems of Northern Ireland cannot be solved by the people of Northern Ireland alone. Obviously, he later goes on to become a, a member of the European Parliament. He was a European to his fingertips. So 
in his DNA, he believed that Europe needed to have a role in Northern Ireland and ultimately Europe did have a role in Northern Ireland. Obviously, years earlier, he had developed these links with America. So I think post-Sunningdale, he realised that America needs to be involved, Dublin and London need to be involved, um, and Europe needs to be involved. And he used this this coalition in all those different capitals, in a sense, to come together. Uh, and he was a fantastic networker. The book obviously is called The Persuader because in many ways he was a persuader in lots of different arenas. He was a persuader of industrialists to bring jobs to Derry. He was a persuader of Republicans to ultimately endorse ceasefires. He was a persuader of unionists to agree a, a political agreement. But he was also a persuader in those capitals that I talk about. He was a persuader in Dublin, in Brussels, and in Washington, where he was able to impress on politicians there that they too should have a role in Northern Ireland. And it reached its zenith in America when you get to the tail end of, 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 of the peace process where people in the White House are the Clinton administration are, are thinking of making a decision and someone says, well, what does John Hume think? And then you realise the influence that he had. Here's a single MP from the northwest of Ireland leading, in Irish terms, a relatively small party, much smaller than Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. But here is this one man who has this influence in the Oval Office. And that is quite remarkable when you have essentially the leader of the free world deferring to John Hume. That is incredible. For 30 years, John Hume has been committed to achieving peace through negotiations, not confrontation and violence. He has been an inspiration to the nationalist community, to all the people of Northern Ireland, and indeed, all around the world. Once you get to 1998, there is the, the crowning glory, if you like, on his career, the Good Friday Agreement. And yes, Trimble was a key architect. Hume was a key architect. Um, there were other people who were very heavily involved in that. But more than anybody, I think it's clear that Hume's ideas infused that agreement um, to an extent that was really way beyond anybody else who was involved in that process. But one, one of the things that struck me when I was reading this book was that when you go back to one of these articles that we talked about earlier from 1964, which he wrote for the Irish Times, um, Hume said in one of those articles, good government depends as much on the opposition as on the party in power. Weak opposition leads to corrupt government. And he was aiming that as a criticism at that point in quite a radical way of the old Nationalist Party saying, you're not participating in governing Northern Ireland as the opposition um, and you ought to be doing that. That's your responsibility. But the outcome of the Good Friday Agreement was that he almost discards his own advice to others in 1964. He doesn't have an opposition in that agreement. Um, it doesn't lead to good government. It leads to a situation where there is scandal after scandal, where Stormont collapses time after time. But there was a massive problem, um, structural problem in the Good Friday Agreement there. What, what do you think about the irony of that? Well, if you look at 1998 from this distance of of 2023, you you could certainly construct an argument to advocate a series of changes. Um, you know, one simple one that's been in the news recently, the designation of first minister and deputy first minister. Should it be joint office? Should is that is that a mistake? 
from the Good Friday Agreement, the, the titles are their mistake, the petition of concern, uh, the misuse of the petition of concern, should that have been more tightly defined? The issue of a border poll, it's very loose. Uh, did nationalists and Republicans take their eye off the ball in terms of the conditions um, for a border poll? The counter argument to that would be that if the conditions perhaps had been tighter, then you might have scared the unionist horses. So there is that to think of. And as you say, there is the whole issue. No one envisaged the idea of an opposition. This was to be a a, a coalition government uh, to make sure that there would be no more abuses of the past. The abuses that John Hume witnessed uh, in Derry in the 1960s, the idea that people would use office to keep people out of a house, the idea that someone would use their political office to keep someone out of a job, that there would be this 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 system whereby people were effectively treated as second-class citizens, that 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 could could not be returned to. Um, so that was the driving force to get good government where people were involved in the decision-making. But you're absolutely right. The idea of an opposition wasn't considered. And I think if you were doing an audit of the Good Friday Agreement, then certainly the idea of, a, of an opposition um, would be in that audit. Hume was arguably much bigger than the party of which he was a member and was was the was the leader for many for many many years. After he leaves, after he retires from politics, the SDLP goes into into what was significant decline, might in future be seen as terminal decline, who knows. How much of that was Hume's fault? Well, um uh, people within the party say um that the party has to take collective responsibility here because there wasn't planning in the party for life post-Hume. Um, there was talk at some stage perhaps that Seamus Mallon would succeed uh, John Hume as party leader, but Seamus Mallon's wife uh, Gertrude was ill and uh, Seamus Mallon took a personal decision that it was too late for him to take on uh, the burden of leadership because uh, Gertrude had to come uh, first. So, you know, there were there are criticisms from ex-party members and, and privately current party members that the party did not plan enough. And there was a naivety, I think, on John Hume's behalf uh, that he didn't see the growth of Sinn Féin. But he was convinced that the electorate would always remember his role and would remember the role of the SDLP and he thought that the electorate would continue uh, to reward the SDLP. Now, what happened was, uh, and, and the answer to this I think is complicated, uh, Sinn Féin became better organised. They were able to get younger voters in a way that the SDLP couldn't. They started to speak a language that particularly appealed to younger voters. The SDLP started to look old-fashioned and out of date. Uh, Sinn Féin started to look like the new kid on the block with a lot of the new answers. And slowly that graph changed. Uh, slowly uh, Sinn Féin caught up with the SDLP and then inevitably Sinn Féin overtook the SDLP. There are people who say that John Hume did see Sinn Féin's rise coming and he essentially consciously sacrificed his party, was willing to do that for peace. He thought peace was more important than his party. And that obviously, if it's true, would be a noble thing you could argue. Um, what, what matters a party if people are dying in the streets? But 
do you think, I mean, I, I'm getting a sense from what you're saying that you think it's more likely that he misread nationalism. He thought nationalism would stick with him and that ultimately his party wouldn't decline in the way that it did. I think he probably believed both things. I think he probably believed that, you know, saving lives was more important than party politics. He genuinely believed that. He genuinely believed if he could go out and talk to somebody and save a life, then it was worth doing. And in fact, when he got enormous criticism from unionists and loyalists, he encouraged unionists and loyalists to do the same thing with loyalist paramilitaries. He said, why aren't you talking to loyalist paramilitaries? He said, it is our job as public representatives. Whilst there is this campaign of violence going on, it is our job to go out there and try and stop this. So he genuinely believed that that saving lives should be above party politics. But on the other hand, um, he still believed, um, bearing in mind, Sam, that he was used to being top of the poll. He was used to winning elections. He has a very impressive electoral record. Uh, In fact, I remember having a conversation with someone about the strength of his electoral record. And we were having a conversation about how good it was. And this person said to me, ah, but there was one person in Derry that could have beaten uh, John Hume in a poll. And I said, really? Who was that? And they said, well, that's Pat Hume. (laughs) Uh, And Pat, who we haven't spoken about, uh, is a very important part of the story. Um, She was incredibly popular. She had a great political brain. She ran his office. She organised him. um, And she was a woman of great care and a woman of great grace. And she is an essential part uh, of the John Hume story. And in many ways, she was his first and last, I think, before John Hume had to take a really big decision. She was very often the first person that he discussed it with before he had to take the decision. She was the last person he discussed it with. Um, and she had a very good handle on what was happening uh, politically. I think Pat was a major influence on John's life, a major influence on uh, the thinking at that time within the SDLP generally through John. Uh, and I think that uh, we all owe a debt of gratitude to Pat um, uh, and for that influence that she brought to bear. Tell me about John Hume's final years. There's a great poignancy in this section of the book where this great mind, this incredible political leader, this big historical figure, um, his mind withers over time. And it's one of the tragedies that many people experience. But when somebody of this stature gradually dies almost um, before us, there's a particular poignancy to that. Tell me about his final years and then his death during the pandemic. Well, there is a great sadness to it because I I, I think... uh, uh, John Hume didn't get the retirement that I think he deserved uh, towards his uh, latter years, particularly with dementia. He wasn't able to recall some of the key moments. He wasn't able to recall the fact that he was involved in discussions to to achieve ceasefires. He wasn't able to recall the moments of the Good Friday Agreement um, and of uh, the Nobel Peace Prize. But there were parts of his brain um, that that were still alive and active. He was still able to sing. Uh, Singing is an important part of the John Hume story because he sang all his life and he was able to sing in English, in Irish and in French. And even, you know, Amy McCluskey would remark that when you thought perhaps John was having a quiet day and wasn't following things, you know, he would have gone down to the, the day room and you put a microphone in his hand and he was able to sing a song quite remarkable, um, able to sing The Town I Loved So Well or or Danny Boy. Um, so there is a, a sadness to that. But 
before he went into the home, obviously he stayed in the, um, the, the family home. And Pat Hume talks about Derry being a very dementia-friendly city. Um, the family encouraged John to be as independent as possible. So he would go out for walks away from the family home. And they never worried um, about him because Pat said somebody would always pick him up and bring him home. And, um, you know, cars would stop in Derry and would wind down the window and say, hey, John, can I take you home? So he would get home. If he went down to the local pub to have a drink, there would be five or six people at the end that would stand up. No sooner had he put his glass on the counter than five or six people would say, let me, they wanted the honour to drive John Hume home. Here was a city reaching out to John Hume, looking after John Hume, the very city that he had campaigned for and fought for. And in that sense, it was a closing of the circle. Um, they were re repaying the compliment. They were basically saying thank you to him. And in terms of his funeral, obviously it happened during COVID. He didn't get the large, effectively, almost like a state funeral that you would have expected. And obviously the numbers were down and obviously it was because of COVID guidelines. The city came together, albeit in very small numbers because of COVID. But I think the family feel he was given, um, uh, you know, a proper and a family send-off in the end. I, I, I'm told that this was simply by luck. John Hume was a massive Derry City fan all his life. He loved football. He went to the Brandywell. Even as a schoolboy, he was able to recount various cup-winning teams. It was very much part of his life. And he is buried um, in the cemetery overlooking Brandywell. So as one of his children said, he has the best view in the house of uh, Brandywell and Derry City Football Club. So a, 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 a poignant and a fitting uh, ending. A century from now, when everyone listening to this is gone, what are people going to say about John Hume? John Hume helped Northern Ireland move from violence and war into peace. Here we are and we live in John Hume's Northern Ireland. We don't have car bombs. We don't have control zones. We're not searched going into shops. We don't listen to the news with dread hearing about the latest bombing. We live in a world that John Hume helped create. It is imperfect. There is an awful lot still to do. But the world is a million miles away from 1973. Um, and it is a world that John Hume helped create. Stephen Walker, thank you very much. This episode of The Bell Tale was produced by Sam McBride. The assistant producer was Olivia Peden. Sound design by Graham Davidson. The clips you heard were from Thames TV, Caltech, Sky, the BBC and RTE. When you get an Irish independent digital subscription, you don't just get access to the news at your fingertips. For a limited time, you'll also receive a 75 euro O'Neill's gift card. So what are you waiting for? Get the whole kit and caboodle. Visit independent.ie forward slash subscribe today. Irish Independent. Terms and conditions apply.